Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Thank you for being with us this week again on ADH. This is where things are said which others aren't prepared to say, and you'll hear a lot of that tonight. The cancel culture, eh? Alternatively, of course, we say things here which some people find a bit uncomfortable to hear. One of the most staggering developments at the weekend was the long media puff piece on the Prime Minister saying he wants to govern for 10 years. He talked about his government's long-term reform agenda. It's one year last Sunday couple of days ago since Anthony Albanese was elected. And of course, it seems the honeymoon is still on, primarily because apart from The Voice, Albo's hardly said anything. He's never here. He loves all these summits full of empty rhetoric about the gathering of democracies and we've got common values, telling us his government has, quote, a sense of purpose and, quote, we've dealt with immediate challenges by building a better future long term, unquote. You're on something, Albo. I think a former Labor minister got it right when he said the Prime Minister had, quote, benefited enormously from low expectations. It seems that the Prime Minister's biggest plus is that he's had a, quote, remarkably clean first year, unworried by any kind of scandal or major error, unquote. Well, as in sport, if you do nothing, you don't make many mistakes. Members of the Albanese government will be working overtime today, though, to Duchess media outlets because they'd be unhappy with the headlines today. Quote, big business warning about industrial relations reform. Put simply, the notion of same job, same pay, they now call SJSP, is absolute nonsense. It used to be called comparative wage justice. Now, what the federal government now wants to say is that a cafe worker in Mount Isa should have the same pay as a cafe worker in the Melbourne CBD. Now, this defies economic reality. Businesses will go broke. The cafe owner in Mount Isa can only charge what the community can afford to pay and can only pay what his profits allow him to pay. But the unions are on the march. Then another headline about the working homeless. <laughs> People in the heart of Anthony Albanese's own electorate in Sydney's inner west sleeping in tents and cars three kilometres from the Prime Minister's home. Now, Albo, I know you're enjoying the flashy overseas lifestyle, but there's a housing crisis, mate, on your back door. What are you doing about it in your reformist government? You wanted the job, Albo. And you said people will be better off under us. And you said at the weekend, you want to be there for 10 years. You made all these dud promises, and now the chickens are coming home to roost. What about the further headline? That the investment bank UBS has said food inflation reached 9.6% in April. Wasn't worry you about it. You get all your food at the lodge for nothing. But out there, there are people shopping, mate, and it's very hard to pay the bills. How do households manage? And Prime Minister, with other cost of living pressures, including your increases in energy prices, and all this coming from a shortage in supply and labour costs, and a federal government that's got no answer to either. So will interest rates go up again? The budget struck at the heart of the only good news story we have the money we get as a nation from exporting our resources. But in announcing a $5 billion surplus, Treasurer Chalmers referred to Australia's good fortune in receiving, don't you love this, high prices for the things we sell overseas, unquote. A government embarrassed about the success of the things it seeks to destroy. Those things are fossil fuels and coal, solely responsible for the budget surplus. And yet the government's growth strategy, according to it, relies on making us a renewable energy superpower, something achieved nowhere else in the world. We are already, you dopes in Canberra, an energy superpower, which this Albanese government is trying to destroy and replace with a new renewable energy superpower. But I suppose if you fork out billions of dollars of taxpayers' money, there's a good chance someone will buy into the renewable energy myth. Oh, yes, the rent seekers. They love the money just being tossed out at them. The budget had another $4 billion towards making Australia a renewable energy superpower. Total bribes for renewable energy, this is your money, which achieved, well achieved nowhere near the 43% reduction in emissions by 2030. Total bribes so far, over $40 billion of your money. Rebecca Weiser, to whom I spoke last week, quotes Warren Buffett in America saying, federal policies 
are the only reason to build wind farms. A piddling surface, five billion, in a budget of 630 billion a year, in an economy worth $2,600 billion. But Albo wants 10 years to prevent an incoming Liberal government from dismantling his reformist agenda. I say dismantle this rubbish now. There is nothing positive to report. And now we're dividing the nation on race. Forget the promise about reducing energy prices, but Labor also promised new aged care clinics. One year on, not one. So patients are stranded in emergency departments, waiting for space in an appropriate ward, hospital ward, while aged care clinics don't exist to accommodate aged care special needs. And of course, not a word about where the staff would come from. Dr Claire Skinner of the Australian College for Emergency Medicine says working conditions for doctors are, quote, the worst they've experienced in their careers, unquote. Anne Rustin, the coalition or opposition health spokeswoman, is right when she argued the urgent care clinics were, quote, not only a broken promise, but an empty one as well. Well, as I've already said, this so-called reformist government is now running into an, in a, into an industrial relations brick wall. Don't tell me gutless business leaders are waking up. Don't tell me they swallowed the rubbish that there'll be no payback to the unions. The unions have always wanted to gather up self-employed tradies, truckies, and engineers under their influence. And this so-called reformist government, mark my words, they'll give in, they'll yield, just listen to Tony Burke. And through all this, Albo's been overseas again. Photos everywhere. He can't believe his luck. A joint statement with President Biden. Oh, poor bugger. He wouldn't even know who Albo was. He most probably doesn't know who he is himself. All this is written before they leave home, by the way. But there was nothing in the statement which strengthens our defence capacity. As one knowledgeable correspondent said today, a lot of bureaucratic verbiage and distressingly little substance. He said, believe it or not, the Quad statement doesn't mention Russia. Poor old elbows swamped by the bureaucracy and now uses their language. Don't you love this? Our Prime Minister talked about the lack of guardrails that are there in international relations. What the bloody hell does that mean? And called for the status quo when it comes to the Taiwan Straits. And this one, what about this? Talk about platitudinous rubbish. Ukraine, all that we offered was, quote, a tribute to the unwavering resilience and courage displayed by the Ukrainian people. Again, as one informed writer asked, why would Biden be coming to Australia? More of Albo and the fakery of his government in a moment. But it was budget time in Victoria today for Labor's most successful government, Daniel Andrews. And there's your Labor template while voters are sound asleep. In eight years to 2022, the number of Andrews government public sector employees rose by 26%, the payroll by 70%. Spend, spend and spend. In 2019-20, the net government debt, net, 9.5% of gross state product. That's of what the state earns, produces, 9.5%. Now it's heading towards 25% by 2025-26. The interest bill on the debt will double. Key infrastructure projects in Victoria, way over budget, or they're delayed or cancelled. But for those that are not, no one has got a clue, including Andrews, when the projects will be completed. Oh yes, it's a great Andrews government. Do we blame him though? Or do we blame the voters of Victoria or a disgraceful, disorganised, irrelevant, non-existent Liberal opposition? When Labor came to power in Victoria in 2014, the state owed 21.8 billion. 21.8 billion, nine years ago, 21.8. By 2025-26, billion. And of course, they think we're stupid. Andrews will blame it on coronavirus. He has. But of course, we must be stupid because Victorian voters have swallowed all this spendthrift palaver in the past. And now Albo and Chalmers are holding the levers in Canberra. They believe that more spending produces better outcomes. The education system tells us that that too is pointless jargon. I've warned before and I'll warn again. There are bad times ahead. And remember one thing, there is not a problem we face that hasn't been created by government. But we're the mugs who've allowed it to happen. We often rightly boast, don't we, about the benefits of Western civilization and the gifts given to us by the legacy left as a result of Captain Arthur Philip landing in this country. After all, what the critics of so-called colonization or invasion 
don't ease, don't easily understand is that if not Philip, someone else would have colonised and one wonders whether the benefits of British democracy would ever have been known to us. Would you or I ever have even been here? One of those gifts to the modern world about which we boast is the rule of law. We're all equal under the law. But is it time to assess whether or not that's true? Are people equal under the law? The voice is another matter, but that's one of its fundamental weaknesses. One small group would be more equal than others. But put that aside and marry the rule of law with the criminal justice system. What can be said of a criminal justice system when Lindy Chamberlain would still be in jail if a jumpsuit hadn't been found at Ayers Rock? Kathleen Folberg is still in jail, described repulsively as Australia's worst mass murderer, yet all along this poor woman, whom I know has said that she didn't kill her babies, but it's almost two years since 76 eminent researchers, including two Nobel laureates and several Australians of the year said via a petition that new medical evidence about a mutant gene carried by two of the Folbig children creates, quote, a strong presumption that they died from natural causes. 76 eminent researchers, but another 14 international experts at the time signed a petition making all up 90 top scientists, medical practitioners and science advocates calling on the New South Wales Governor Margaret Beasley, this was two years ago, to pardon the then 53-year-old Kathleen Folbig and immediately release her from jail, calling for an end to the miscarriage of justice. Kathleen has been in jail for 20 years, 90 top scientists. She's still there. Are we entitled to ask how often the criminal justice system gets it wrong? Janet Orbrechtson, possessed of a wonderful mind and writing skills which deliver information with clarity, was the joint author at the weekend of a piece called Verdict First, Trial Later, Rule of Law Under Threat. She interviewed Stephen Wybrow, SC, his first interview since Mr Wybrow's client, Bruce Learman, went on trial over Brittany Higgins' rape allegations. Stephen Wybrow called the whole fiasco Alice in Wonderland stuff. Verdict first, trial later. As Mr Wybrow said, like Lindy Chamberlain and Kathleen Folbig, and I quote, there was so much material out there that was just simply, he's guilty and we've just got to go through this process of a trial. He said, Wybrow, I saw that as a significant undermining of the rule of law and the presumption of innocence and due process, unquote. But then Stephen Wybrow SC said this, and you've got to say it slowly, quote, we all know this happens all the time. This guy's been accused of this, so therefore it happened. And along the way, anyone who tried to argue the contrary narrative was treated as somehow morally deficient, unquote. Wybrow's comments come alongside the revelation by Bruce Learman that when he tried to get legal assistance for his defence, Legal Aid ACT insisted it would not allow Miss Higgins to be challenged in court as a liar but simply, quote, perhaps mistaken about versions of events. Mr Learman said a solicitor at Legal Aid told him it was up to the CEO of Legal Aid in terms of the broader tactics of the case, and he, that's presumably the CEO of Legal Aid, was going to say that she, Higgins, is not a liar, but was mistaken about aspects of the version of events, unquote. And Legal Aid rejected Mr Wybrow as, quote, too aggressive to take on the case. So Mr Wybrow ultimately took on the case pro bono. Mr Wybrow's no slouch. As Janet Albrechtson relates, he pursued a forceful approach at the trial, describing Ms Higgins as unreliable and someone who, quote, says things to suit her. And there is evidence. Yesterday, by Detective Superintendent Moller, that police, under pressure to charge Bruce Learman, received, this was evidence yesterday, received a phone call from the boyfriend of Ms Higgins. Detective Superintendent Moller gave evidence yesterday that within an, hour, within an hour of the boyfriend's call, the police investigators were given instructions to serve a summons on Mr Learman. Superintendent Moller told the inquiry yesterday that detectives were under so much pressure to progress the case against their professional beliefs that many went on stress leave. Superintendent Moller confirmed that police did not believe there was enough evidence to charge Mr Lehman. But the so-called Moller reports on the police investigation were not disclosed to the defence. One of the many things revealed in the Moller reports was that police discovered texts on Miss Higgins' phone that said, quote, I'm clearing out my phone ahead of police and F-U-C-K it. If they, the AFP, want to play hardball, I'll cry on the project again because of this sort of treatment, unquote. 
Higgins told police that she had chocolates and vomited in the bathroom. But the cleaner stated he didn't have to do anything more than a light clean, saw no stains on the couch and didn't observe anything to suggest the bathroom had been used. Mr Wybrow told jurors Higgins had lied about seeing a doctor, quote, to make it more believable, unquote, that she had allegedly been sexually assaulted. And Wybrow outlined a number of incidences where Higgins was forced to concede she'd given wrong evidence. Mr Wybrow told jurors, quote, the person bringing the allegation is prepared to just say anything. Mr Wybrow further expressed concerns over the role of the ACT Victims of Crime Commissioner, Heidi Yates, who often accompanied Ms Higgins to court. And as Mr Wybrow said, quote, the problem in this case, and it's not just my perception, it's one that I know a lot of people have shared, is that by walking next to Ms Higgins into court every day as the statutory office holder of the position of the Victims of Crime Commissioner, and that would be videoed every morning, it would be in the papers and the news that night, it carried with it a less than subtle and less than subconscious inference that Ms Higgins was, in fact, a victim. Mr Wybrow said it was about as subtle as if Ms Yates had walked in wearing a T-shirt saying, Bruce is guilty. Now, if this is not bordering on the scandalous and raising significant concerns about the criminal justice system, what is? In a submission to the ACT Board of Inquiry into the prosecution of Bruce Lehman, which is what this is called, otherwise known as the Sofronoff Inquiry, led by, led by Walter Sofronoff SC, Detective Superintendent Scott Moller writes in a submission of Heidi Yates, the ACT Victims of Crime Commissioner, that, quote, Miss Yates was more interested in Miss Higgins pushing the Me Too movement than being committed to the upcoming trial, unquote. What is now known as the Moller Report is probing the conduct of the Chief Prosecutor, Shame Drumgold, in withholding the Moller Report from the defence team. Superintendent Moller made the very valid point that Higgins had previously declined to proceed with a complaint, quote, the significant aspects of that briefing for me was that Miss Higgins was not willing to provide a formal statement at that time and wanted to delay providing the statement until after a news article by journalist Samantha Maiden had been published and that she had already participated in an interview with Lisa Wilkinson, which was to be aired on the project. Unquote. Superintendent Moller submitted, I didn't understand why Miss Higgins had chosen to involve the media prior to providing the police with a formal statement. However, my briefing articulated that Ms Higgins wanted to ensure the investigation was active to support the media releases. He said this had me immediately suspicious and questioning the motives of Ms Higgins for reporting the incident. Of the ACT DPP Shane Rumgold, Superintendent Moller says that when he met with Mr Drumgold on June 1, 2021, three weeks before the DPP, received the brief of evidence on June 21, quote, it was clear to me that he'd already decided on progressing the prosecution, even though he'd not reviewed the evidence, unquote. Superintendent Moller further said, talking about the DPP Drumgold's relationship with prominent media figures, and I quote, it did make me feel uncomfortable when the evidence revealed Mr Drumgold was communicating with journalist Samantha Maiden during the investigation and well prior to the trial. Superintendent Moller said that he felt during the entire investigation that Mr Drumgold, quote, was not collegiate and was attempting to collect information on myself and the investigation members with the intention of criticising the Australian Federal Police and the investigation team to deflect any criticism away from him and his office, unquote. Now, this is the early profile of the criminal justice system that landed an Australian man in the courts charged with a serious offence. It's more than a superficial observation, surely, that you can make that when you marry this to the Lindy Chamberlain episode and Kathleen Folbig, to name but three, surely the criminal justice system itself is on trial. Well, there can't be many Australians who'll ever forget the extraordinary denial of freedoms in response to coronavirus. All political parties fell into line. It was impossible to get sensible debate. And people like me and others who raised legitimate and thoroughly researched concerns were cancelled. You will remember Craig Kelly, the then federal member for Hughes, who was roundly vilified. Indeed, one self-opinionated journalist described Craig H Kelly, did I say Craig Hughes? Craig Kelly, I meant he was the member for Hughes, Craig Kelly, as a foghorn of ignorance. 
Central to all this non-debate was whether we fall into line with the government argument that Big Pharma had all the answers via vaccination. Now, remember to this day, we have never been told what the Big Pharmaceutical companies were paid. The poor mug taxpayer was told that everything was free. Coronavirus tests were free, vaccine one was free, vaccine two was free, booster one free, booster two, and Big Pharma just kept counting the money. And the taxpayer to this day has been told nothing. I remember Craig Kelly in one of the many interviews with me because he had read more widely than most, cited an open letter from a raft of distinguished UK doctors to the chief executive of the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency in Britain, which is responsible for ensuring that medicines and medical devices work and are acceptably safe. The letter of several pages expressed concern that the coercion being exercised to accept a certain medical treatment, namely vaccinations, was against UK and international law and declarations. And the letter talked about the need, quote, to consider each product individually on its merit, unquote, and that, quote, no medical intervention should be introduced on a one-size-fits-all basis, but should be fully assessed for suitability according to the characteristics of the age cohort and of the individuals concerned. Well, the letter from these eminent health professionals, that deans of medicine, concluded, quote, there is wisdom in the Hippocratic Oath, which states first, do no harm, all medical interventions carry a risk of harm. So we have a duty, the oath says, to act with caution and proportionality. This, it says, the oath is particularly the case when considering mass intervention in a healthy population in which situation, the Hippocratic Oath says, there must be firm evidence of benefits far greater than harm, unquote. Well, back in 2021, I quoted amongst many, one Dr. Jeffrey Bark, a board certified primary care physician from Orange County in Southern California. I did that because he had personally treated multiple COVID-19 patients. None of them needed hospitalization or died. He argued that COVID-19 was serious, but the people should not be afraid. And yet he said, quote, as things now stand, we've reached a point where it's almost impossible to differentiate medical truth from medical fiction, health information from health misinformation. He said, there's never been an organised effort to censor and completely shut down opinions that differ from the mainstream in the last 200 years of medical practice, but it's happening now. He went on, currently any information that casts concern about one of the approved COVID-19 vaccinations is censored. And the source is accused of being anti-science, fear-mongering, publicity-seeking, or part of a fringe group to be shunned, unquote. And this is the guts of it. And I know this full well because it reached a point in Australia where you could not mention hydro hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. In fact, in Queensland, under that Dr. Jeanette Young, a doctor faced jail for administering hydroxychloroquine. Dr. Bark was not alone when he said, if a public presentation is made advocating hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, or even such supplements as vitamin D or zinc, the person's medical credentials are assaulted, unquote. Well, from America to Australia. And again in 2021, I read and then mentioned on air a study co-authored by distinguished Australians, Professor Robert Clancy and Professor Thomas Barodi. This was at a time when I was almost forbidden as a broadcaster to mention ivermectin. These professors argued correctly, quote, there's currently a lack of effective treatment for early or ambulatory patients with COVID-19. Now this happens today, patients testing positive are just sent home to isolate and generally no specific line of treatment is described in this phase of the illness. However, there is growing evidence, these two professors said, that certain repurposed drugs with good safety profiles taken early can significantly improve outcomes, unquote. It then says, among those extensively studied, COVID-19 therapeutics is ivermectin, a drug that's been used safely in 3.7 billion doses worldwide since 1987. These are not charlatans writing this. These are distinguished professors. Now, I was forbidden from even using the word. Professors Clancy and Brody went on, quote, recently, Dr. Satoshi Omura, now, 
He was the 2015 Nobel Prize co-laureate for the discovery of ivermectin. Well, he said recently, the Dr. O'Meara and colleagues, their comprehensive studies to date on ivermectin activity against COVID concluded, this is a Nobel Prize laureate, do you mind, concluded that the preponderance of the evidence demonstrates efficacy. Well, at the time, I challenged all politicians to answer whether they had read any of this stuff, but they were under the spell of bureaucrats and big pharma. The study co-authored by Professor Clancy and Professor Barodi, both Australians said, IVM, ivermectin, has been tested in more than 20 randomised controlled trials for COVID-19 treatment with statistically high significant clinical benefits in almost all of these and a pooled mortality reduction of 78%. Professor Clancy also said, on the matter of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, Craig Kelly has been right to raise awareness about these drugs and their potential to be effective in the early treatment of the disease. They said vaccines do have limitations. They need to be paired with effective, safe drug treatment. He said, I believe two candidates are safe, cheap, available and effective. They are, these are professors, Australian professors. They are ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. I said all this two years ago and talked to these men, off, can't have them on the program. He said, as an immunologist, I'm an expert and I believe my opinions need some clear air of the attacks on Craig Kelly for so arguing and drawing attention to these studies, Professor Clancy said, it is very sad when people start dragging the guy apart. It's bad enough when you drag someone apart on facts, but if you do it without facts or understanding what the argument is, he said, it's disappointing. Well, in my view, all this points to the need for a Royal Commission, doesn't it? And that's what you'd be saying listening to me. Hang on, we've been grossly deceived and damagingly misled, but we won't get one because governments of all persuasions were led by the nose. Before I go any further, I've got an interesting interview coming up about this. Let me just add this. Before the last New South Wales state election, I interviewed a candidate for this program. I won't say whether it was a male or a female. The interview never went to air. I pre-recorded it. The candidate was a doctor who, having done the interview, grew fearful of the consequences. A doctor of distinction, a GP, GP for 22 years with a tremendously successful medical practice. Now, of course, there's a relationship between patients and doctors until all those freedoms were taken away. In 2021, a patient came to this doctor's surgery, refused to go to hospital. The doctor prescribed an off-label drug containing ivermectin to treat a gravely ill patient. The patient lived. Someone dobbed the doctor in. The doctor was suspended from medical practice and is still suspended because the drug contained ivermectin. Joan Nova is one of those pesky people disliked by government because she's an intellectual, wonderful mind, does her research and does her homework. She is a prize-winning science graduate in molecular biology. She's given speeches across Australia in New York, Washington, Munich, Oslo and London. Not that it matters, but she's also married to a PhD scientist from Stanford University. She's the author of the Skeptic's Handbook, which has been translated into 15 languages. And each day, around 12,000 people read joannova.com.au. You check it out. You might learn something. joannova.com.au. She toured Europe a few years ago, speaking about how to destroy an electricity grid. I'll talk to her about that at a later time. But today, I want to talk to her about the revelation that after an approximately 700-day ban for no medical reason, the Australian Therapeutic Goods Administration, TGA, have decided that our doctors will be allowed to prescribe ivermectin like doctors did for decades without a problem. Work that out. Joanne, thank you for your time. Just before, for those who don't know you, now I don't want to embarrass you, but you are impeccably credentialed to speak about this. Could you just explain that simply to our viewers? And the funny thing is, Ellen, I don't actually think credentials 
are the thing. I know, I know everyone likes to know them and to hear them and it's part of the national debate. But I, as a scientist, I kind of always come back to the fact that it all depends on the evidence, the observations, the arguments people make and not on their credentials. I, my credentials are doing a science degree where I, I got prizes in microbiology and genetic engineering. So I'm very familiar with the language. I can read the medical papers, but I haven't done research in a long time. But it's still, you know, reading these papers, you can see so many ways that medical research can be screwed up. And this is what is so scary. And yes, after a 628-day ban for no medical reason that anyone can name, the Australian TGA has decided that our doctors are now allowed to prescribe ivermectin off-label just like they have for decades with no issues and no problems. It's mm. one of the safest drugs Absolutely. known to mankind. See, <clears throat> it's extraordinary because it doesn't actually react with our biochemical pathways. Mm. That's one of the ways we know it. It's, it's, it works against insects and people have said, well, you know, it's a horse dewormer, therefore. But there's no law of physics or chemistry or biochemistry that says something that's good against tapeworm yeah. can't also be useful against Absolutely. a virus. A molecule is a molecule. We need to study all of them. See, Joe, I said earlier there should be a Royal Commission. I've got no hope of getting that because every political party subscribed to this disgraceful demonisation of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. So they'd all be in the witness box. And now the TGA who called the shots, along with these health bureaucrats and chief medical officers saying, oh, 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 from June 1, from June 1, prescribing oral ivermectin won't be limited. And sickeningly, the TGA says, and I quote, there is sufficient evidence that the safety risks to individuals and public health is low when prescribed by a general practitioner. Joe Nova, the evidence was always there. It was, indeed, it was always there. And the latest count put up by volunteers, of course, the best science seems to be done by volunteers, and that's how science used to be. For years, up until about World War II, it was mostly a philanthropic thing where someone passionate about discovering something would find a, a rich funder who could keep them going and convince that one person that they had something useful to contribute. But science has been captured by big government since World War II, and we, uh, one of the US presidents warned us against this, Eisenhower, and it has happened. Science has become captured as a monopoly by the government and it's strangled by putting everything through a committee and controlled by a committee. Science doesn't have the freedom that it used to have or the competition. Everything's now predetermined by some committee. And who elected the TGA? Why do they get to decide these things? So volunteers put up a collection of ivermectin studies. We're now up to 96 studies from 1,000 scientists, 135,000 patients involved in these studies in 27 countries. So the amount of research on this is enormous and many drugs that the TGA approves, they have barely of one or few percent as, as many studies as what has been done on this. Uh, ivermectin has been around for so long, given to, I think, something like 3.7 billion people around the world with seemingly few issues. In fact, Alan, it was so safe 10 years ago, the uh, Australian uh, medical profession gave children in Canberra ivermectin. Did you know that? Yes, I did to grit lice out of the hair or something. Yeah, to get rid of head lice. Head lice. And, you know, yeah. that was a Canberra school a Canberra where the kids were school. given it. And yep. it, it was considered so safe yes. back in 2010. It was so safe that they sent children home from school with packets, I think, to give to yeah. their parents and a sheet of paper saying, course, this is what you do with brothers so, and sisters. And, and I didn't so, need a prescription. Yeah, and, of course, we'll come to this in a minute, but i just got to say for the first time, safe and cheap, which is why Big Pharma... Big Pharma, we're looking over their shoulders at government. We don't want something that can do the job that's safe and cheap and available to everybody. There was a big quid in it, and we haven't to this day found out what the big quids were. Joe, I interviewed Lord Sumption last year, the former judge of the Supreme Court in Britain, and he said this, quote, the ease with which people could be terrorised into surrendering basic freedoms which are fundamental to your existence came as a shock to me in March 2022. So, Joe, the greatest abuse of freedom was to deny the relationship between the doctor and the patient. Frightening, indeed. And, you know, the doctor's answer to APRA, 
who knew that APRA decided what your doctor was allowed to say and the TGA decided what drugs they were allowed to give you and if they thought a drug was right for you and the best possible treatment, they weren't even allowed to mention it by the sounds of it or Correct. they would be reported and Correct. then disbarred. I mean, it's it's been disgusting. The whole thing you mentioned before about the contracts with Pfizer, I liken this to, you know, imagine the Australia is a house. So we're a big group house. You live in a house with six people, you elect one of them to go and do a deal with a chemist to supply the whole house with drugs. And when you get back from the hardware mart, you find out he's done the deal, but you're not allowed to see the contract and you can't see the trial data, you can't see the results, you don't know what it costs, you don't know how long it lasts or how the money will be auto-drawn from un in unmarked tranches from your bank account, but it will be, and then you find out you have to take the drug you're not allowed in the kitchen. Yes, I, I mean, mean, and then we're sucked in. Because constantly told it's free. It's free. So the test's free. The vaccination's free. The, oh, I mean, what rubbish. We paid and we're still not told what big pharma have been made, have made out of it. Joe, you've got people like Professors Clancy and Brody, distinguished Australians. They were ignored when they said, in the middle of coronavirus, I quote them, among the most extensively studied COVID-19 therapeutics is ivermectin a drug that's been used safely, and you just mentioned this, in 3.7 billion doses worldwide since 1987. They quoted the Nobel Prize winner, Dr Satoshi Omura, Nobel Prize, who had reviewed mm -hmm. studies and, according to the professor's quote, concluded that the preponderance of evidence demonstrated efficacy, fancy word, it means that ivermectin was affected, with a, quote, pooled mortality reduction of 78%. Joe Nova, what is criminal ne negligence? Well, culpability, culpability. Someone is culpable for the deaths of people who weren't given a cheap, safe drug. Well, hang on, just to interrupt you there, stop. Well, I think what we about, need more stop, than a Royal Joe, Commission. Joe, because we, we spoke off air about this, and I want you to say this again. It's a perfect analogy. You talk about every day reading in the paper, Someone, as a result of irresponsible and reckless driving, takes the lives of three, four and five people and they do jail for 10, 12 and 11 years. Isn't that analogous with the failure of government and instrumentalities like TGA taking the lives of people by denying them access to appropriate drugs? Who was the one who made the decision? I think, I mean, the TGA is a committee, but isn't the health minister the one who decides whether to accept the TGA's advice or not? So does that come back to Greg Hunt? Was he the one ultimately who's responsible for banning these safe drugs? And, you know, I could go even further than this. I could call ivermectin the crime of the century, but I actually think we could go back to vitamin D and that might be the crime of the century because it's been going on for decades. Vitamin D interacts with something like 200 genes in our body. It's incredibly cheap, you know, five cents to dose. The reduction in mortality from vitamin D for people who are low, it just goes off the charts. You can yeah. see on the scale, people who are deficient in it, they get affected in so many ways with heart disease, cancer, one-sixth of dementia cases but due to vitamin D. So this is endemic through our medical system and it has been going on for a long time. It's not just something that popped up in the pandemic, but I think we were unaware of just how endemic and serious mm -hmm. it was. Mm -hmm. And we need to really have a discussion about how we do medical research because the system as it is has incentives for companies like Pfizer and, and Moderna to make a fortune out of drugs that can mm. be patented. Mm. The drugs that fall out of patent, mm. they become unusable, yeah, which walking, is what happened to Ivermectin. Yeah, I mean, walking, walking, no the corridor, walking the corridors in Canberra, lobbying government relentlessly, and the argument being, oh, well, hang on, unvaccinated, you've got to be vaccinated because they're threatening the hospital system. That was because they were denied Ivermectin by unaccountable, unelected, as Joe says, government committees. I mean, you've made all these points before. Where are we? Where are we having? I mean, where are we going? To, is this just going to be swept under the carpet? We're in an information war, <laughs> Alan, as you know all too well. And so whether or not we can win this depends on how good we are at getting out the message and spreading the word. And people are being red-pilled one day at a time, a bit by bit. And, and to all the listeners out there, and for Alan's great work over all these years, we need people listening to share the message. Now, only one little bit. You can't wake someone up from 20 years of propaganda in a moment. 
but we can chip away and we can let them know that there's a whole other side out there that the media isn't telling them and the ABC, culpable too. I mean, how much does the ABC share? And it's publicly funded. Its uh, charter is to tell both sides of the story, isn't it? And so where's their culpability for this? They have a science unit, a funded science communication unit. I mean, effectively, that's what I am, a science communicator. My job, trained in science, is to explain it and to try and help reduce the jargon and to make sure the public can make their own mind up on decisions mm. related to science. Well, what? And yet we see none of that. So when no. you call for a royal commission, I keep thinking a royal commission can be rigged Uh, by who they set it up for and the terms and whatnot. We need the court of public opinion. The court of public opinion is the only court that counts. People need to have a choice, a choice about what medicines they should take or shouldn't take, a choice about which doctors they talk to. How come you can't go to someone who's got 40 years as a GP if the TGA or APRA has banned them, if you go there, you That's lose the, um, mm. the Medicare funding, you lose their right to do prescriptions. You know, they are effectively chained to this system, Absolutely. which has been set Absolutely. up and endorsed and, all the and way course, by companies that make billions of dollars. Billions, billions. We're not told. And as you said earlier, you know, the argument, all the arguments against ivermectin had no scientific basis. One of them was, as you should tell our viewers, oh, well, hang on, we, we might run out of ivermectin. The drug is mass-produced, your dopes in Canberra. It costs about six cents a tablet. And in the same month of September 21, when the TGA uttered this nonsense, Indian suppliers sold nearly US $3 billion worth of ivermectin. No one in the Australian government thought to put in an order. It didn't suit them. Shortage was never a problem. The real problem was that the Morrison government, backed by all governments, were in thrall to the big pharmaceutical companies. And meanwhile, 20,000 people died of COVID in Australia who could have been saved. Joe, we'll keep at it. You are a wonderful Australian. I'm very grateful for your scholarship and your time. Um, (laughs) We're only throwing pebbles into the stream, but eventually we've got to create a torrent. One little red pill, Alan, one little red pill, and it makes someone think twice. And then they start to look at everything and they start to pull more information out from the internet. Now, while we still have the free internet, and you know they want to shut that down if they can, people need to start spreading the message, sharing the words, just one little bit. Because, as I said, you try and red pill someone about everything all at once and it it never goes down well. But notice, too, I want to put in a call for name-calling, which you mentioned at the start, Ellen. Name-calling has become a proxy for national debate. We're talking about our energy systems or The Voice or ivermectin and medical policies. We're not discussing the policies. We're not talking about the content of the issue. We're talking about whether you're a racist, denier, homophobic, transphobe, conspiracy theorist. I mean, it's just name-calling. It's kindergarten and we need to call that out and I think people need to go meta I'm having a real pogrom on this this year people need to go meta when they start calling you names don't bother trying to talk about science because we need to have a discussion with civility and manners before you can discuss the science the real point the first point we have to get across is that name calling is not okay it's what kindergarten kids do and what people do who are hiding something Mm -hmm. so until we can stop the name calling and get just a polite Mm -hmm good man debate. We, we can't even begin to discuss national policy. Absolutely. You are outstanding. I mean, at the end of the day, that analogy about people going to jail because they killed people in a car accident, well, what's going to happen here? The behaviour of government and the TGA? If that doesn't constitute errant negligence, what does? There she is, Joe Nova. We're lucky to have people like her, but I tell you what, we've all got to do our bit. We can't leave it to the Joe Novas of this world. Someone's got to stand these people up. And at the end of the day, What has the price been? What price has been paid by so many decent, innocent Australians who were bullied into doing what government said they have to do? Joe, thank you for your time, and we will talk again. You can read Joe. Joe, It's Joanne Nova, J-O-A-N-N-E Nova, .com.au. It's all there, J-O-A-N-N-E Nova, .com.au. And, of course, that is precisely what I was arguing from day one and from my trouble, I and others were cancelled. It is an absolute scandal, but where deaths are involved, it's more than a scandal, it's criminal. And spare a thought for Craig Kelly. The left-wing know-alls in the media described him as a foghorn of ignorance. He was right all along. Now look, for, <laughs> for all those rugby nuts out there, you have the opportunity to be part of a once-in-a-lifetime experience. France are hosting the Rugby World Cup this year in September, October. All the tickets are virtually sold out. 
But if you love your cruises, as I do, you can join me on board. This is fitting an 11 day premium river cruise in Paris. I'm headlining this Rugby World Cup cruise alongside my former player and Wallaby legend, David Campisi. Now the dates are October 19 to October 29. All meals and beverages are included. You'll spend five full days in Paris. Then there are shore excursions off the boat, including the Palace of Versailles. There's a walking food tour in Normandy's capital, Rouen, which is a beautiful place. A visit to the Franco-Australian Museum and the Sir John Monash Centre. Monet's Garden at Giverne. There are activities galore, but the best part, rugby nuts, is that when you book your suite, it includes match tickets to both semi-finals, the bronze final and the final. Transfers to and from the ship, so you've got nothing to worry about. So join Campo and me it's <laughs> on this premium, and we'll talk a lot of rugby rubbish, on this premium French river cruise, and to book or inquire about a suite, suite just call 1300 786 888, 1300 786 888, 13, go on, write it down, 1300 786 or visit the website, zt, capital Z, zt.com.au, zt.com.au. Okay, now you've got the piece of paper and the pen. 1300 786 you ring that number, or the website, zt.com.au. So look forward to seeing you on October 19 this year in Paris. I speak each week on Canberra Radio 2CC to a young man I regard as an outstanding broadcaster, Stephen Centatiempo. But almost day after day, as I'm waiting to come on, I hear Stephen talk about the appalling state of healthcare in Canberra and words fail him, and he's very articulate, in trying to evaluate the mess of the Canberra hospital system centred at Woden. On top of that, we now have the disgraceful totalitarian behaviour of the ACT Labor Greens government, or they called it an assembly, to compulsorily acquire Calvary Hospital, a Catholic-run public hospital. Now, this assumes national importance for reasons I'll outline, but on the democratic side, no one had any idea this was going to happen. Standing orders of the parliament, I might add the population of Canberra is ACT is 472,000. There are 25 members of the ACT Assembly. Nine of them are ministers. The salaries are staggering. The chief minister on almost 400,000. A minister and the leader of the opposition on over 300,000. They could all work to walk, walk to work. The place is as big as a pocket handkerchief. Nine out of 25 are ministers. And the health minister, Rachel Stephen Smith, seems utterly clueless. But now, Labor Greens, with the numbers, suspended the standing orders of the ACT Assembly. And then legislation for the forcible acquisition of the Catholic-run Calvary Hospital was put forward two days after the announcement. The acquisition will be completed by July. Calvary Hospital will be demolished, this is what they say, and rebuilt by a government that at every turn is characterised by failure. By the way, I just say here that the ACT government, I learned, has its sights set on the Institute of Sport Stadium. Now, I wrote the speech that opened that stadium. It was I who recommended to Prime Minister Fraser all those years ago that there should be a National Institute of Sport. The Australian government should not allow an incompetent ACT government anywhere near the Institute. But here they are now, the compulsory acquisition of a Catholic-run public hospital. Now, Peter Dutton, to his credit, has weighed in, calling it a blatant attack on the freedom of religion, quote, first in Australia, possibly the world, unquote. And he's right. As Angela Shanahan wrote, quote, there have been mutterings of dictatorship and suspicions of what next? Now, the main Canberra hospital is at Woden. And when I listen to Stephen Tiempo, all I hear is a catalogue of failure. How can ACT Health run another hospital when it can't run the one it already has? Canberra patients give up and go to Queanbeyan. There's a lack of staff. In March, five cardiologists wrote an open letter stating that procedures at the Canberra Hospital, that's Woden, the procedures were dangerous, but now it wants to run a perfectly satisfactory Catholic-run Calvary Hospital. So there's got to be agenda, hasn't there? I mean, it's not the first time they've had a go at this. They had a shot at a takeover in 2010, the public won the day. But you can't exclude the simple motivation. This is anti-Catholic. Get the Catholic Church out of healthcare which is a metaphor for saying welcome in abortions, sterilisation. To justify the takeover on the basis of abortion is dishonest and ideological. 
in truly life-threatening emergency situations, abortions are performed in Catholic hospitals. Will the Catholic-run hospice be next, which is of concern to many in Canberra? Calvary Hospital leases land. They have rights as a leaseholder. It had been negotiated with the Commonwealth. They've got another 76 years to run. To argue that there was willingness to negotiate is palpably dishonest. I understand there are 51 pages of legislation to cover this acquisition and a team of up to 50 people preparing for it. So this has been planned for some time. And if this can happen to such a large entity as Calvary Healthcare that runs public and private hospitals in the ACT, New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia and Tasmania and runs them well, it could happen anywhere. It's to be hoped Canberrans are not foolish enough to believe that expanding healthcare into a single system is a valid argument. They can't run what they have. So the overarching concern is simple. What are the consequences for other Catholic institutions or other faith-based institutions? The outstanding Catholic Archbishop of Sydney, Anthony Fisher, is petitioning the ACT government to reverse the decision to take the ownership and management of Calvary Hospital away from Calvary Healthcare, a Catholic operator, and give the ownership to a government-run, non-faith-based Canberra Health Services. As Archbishop Fisher says, quote, Calvary Healthcare operates hospitals and aged care facilities across the country and has been operating Calvary Hospital for 44 years. He says the Archbishop is trusted to provide quality healthcare to Canberrans, regardless of their religious belief. Rightly, the Archbishop says, the ACT government is trying to ram through a bill that would allow this extreme land and assets grab to occur as soon as July this year. The bill, he says, was prepared in secret with Calvary management and staff only finding out about it the day before it was tabled in Parliament, and the government has scrapped the usual inquiry process so the bill could be law as soon as May 31. Continues Anthony Fisher, it's no secret the ACT government want to force Calvary Hospital to provide abortions and euthanasia and assisted suicide in the future. He says taking the land, buildings and hospital equipment and transferring staff employment across to Canberra Health Services allows them to, put their, to push their anti-life agenda right through the hospital. Anthony Fisher, many talents, he's very bright and he cannot be ignored. He rightly says this isn't just about Calvary Hospital. If the ACT government can do this to a Catholic hospital, what's to stop them from doing it to a Catholic school or an aged care facility or welfare agency? What's to stop the same thing from happening to institutions run by other faith groups as well? Says the Archbishop, if the ACT government is successful in its radical action, it could serve as a blueprint for other governments as well. Perhaps he should have added Labor Green governments. The Archbishop is asking people across Australia, and I'm asking you to sign the petition, savecalvary.com.au and share it with your friends, savecalvary.com.au. Dr. Kevin Donnelly is a senior fellow at the Australian Catholic University's Glen Institute. Thankfully, he's a cultural warrior fighting to protect what is constantly these days under siege, especially in education. But now this, and he argues rightly that this Canberra move sets a bad precedent for future government takeovers of other faith-based organisations and assets in Australia. And Dr Kevin Donnelly joins me. Kevin, thank you for your time, but here we go again. I mean, had the Morrison government give due attention to the religious discrimination bill instead of worrying about climate change, then such a bill might have ensured that religious hospitals could maintain a faith-based ethos, don't you think? You're dead right, Alan, and uh, Archbishop Fisher is correct. This is a fundamental attack on religious freedom, and it's not just Catholic. It's all those, uh, whether it's Islamic or, or Jewish or Anglican, it's a fundamental attack on religious freedom, and it's something that's happening around Australia, whether it's in Queensland, where a headmaster of a uh, Christian school was made to resign because on the enrolment form, it told parents they had to say, is their child a boy or a girl? Now, they were made to, that principal was made to resign by the government pressure. In Victoria, the government under Chairman Dan, as I call him, has legislated to stop anyone 
advising or counselling young children not to transition. And if they do, they can go to jail. So it's part of this secular attack which is happening around Australia. And it's appalling that the very time the ACT, I call it a local council, Mm. I don't call it a government, it's a local council really, they introduced this bill the week of the budget when all of the media was saturated with the federal budget. They snuck it in. uh, They didn't want anybody to notice. And thankfully you're talking about it right now. Well, Michaelia Cash, the opposition legal affairs spokeswoman, a good lady too, has urged the federal government to immediately intervene. Um, That won't happen. But a religious discrimination bill, I want to come back, would have ensured that religious hospitals could maintain a faith-based ethos without compromising the delivery of medical services. Because, Kevin, this has gone on for years. And I mean, I I live, (laughs) I've had a lot of problems the last few years, and I virtually live at St Vincent's Hospital. It's my second home. I mean, you can forget about the Canberra government. Isn't this a test of the Albanese government? whether it's prepared to provide certainty to patients, not just of Calvary Hospital, but religious bodies across Australia. It is, and uh, I mean, it's a great shame to go back a step that the Scott Morrison government really uh, talked about it, did nothing. And now we have a Labor government under Albanese. They mentioned uh, religious freedom during the campaign, but they've done nothing since to protect it. And uh, when it comes to schools, for example, there was an inquiry earlier this year into whether faith-based schools should be able to employ their own staff. Now, that's been kicked down. They've kicked the can down the road. That uh, report won't be till the end of the year. So they've put it in the too hard basket. But uh, you're dead right. We have freedom of speech, uh, except during COVID, when people like you were cancelled. Uh, we supposedly have freedom of assembly. We're a democratic Western liberal democracy. But when it comes to religion, we have this, what Archbishop Fisher calls an absolutist secular agenda, Mm. trying to cancel religion. Mm. And it's uh, part of this Western move Mm. to destroy, as you would appreciate, Western culture, Mm. Western civilization where Christianity underpins so much of our way of life. Yes, I mean, it's not related, it, well, it's tangentially related to this issue, but I just want to refer to a point you just made. I mean, for example, if you're sending your child to a Catholic school or an Anglican school, would you expect the teachers in that school to prosecute that faith, since it's an Anglican school or a Catholic school? And would a headmaster be sacked because he declined or at least actually asked what your commitment was to that faith. We've gone mad here, absolutely mad. I mean, we have, some, uh, someone's got, someone in government has got to clarify what protection is available to religious institutions. I mean, Clause 16, uh, Clause 16 of the Coalition's Religious Discrimination Bill, which Morrison and co did not enough, they were worried about racing off to Glasgow on climate change. It did offer protection to associations where they were discriminated against because of their association with a religion. But that failed to pass the final weeks of the Morrison government. Don't we need, Dr Kevin Donnelly, don't we need to know how such protections would interface with, say, territory law, like the laws of the ACT? Definitely, and uh, you mentioned it yourself. The reality is, if you're a hospital or a Christian hospital, certainly a Catholic hospital, uh, the Vatican has a very strong view about what I call state-sanctioned killing or mercy killing. Uh, They also have a view about abortion, uh, euthanasia you mentioned. So the church has a very strong view here. Everybody knows what the view is. There are two hospitals in the ACT, from what I can see, and people have a choice. If they don't want to go to the Catholic hospital because they're fearful or worried, and in fact nothing would happen, if they're fearful, they have a secular hospital they That's could correct. go to, That's even though it's second yeah. rate. Even That's though right. it's second rate. But I mean, Kevin, with Labor governments, the whole uh, nation now is a sea of red. I mean, surely we're entitled to be concerned that Labor governments will now target other faith other welfare, other community groups without any consultation. I mean, there's an ideological agenda here and it's a sort of an anti-life agenda. And Archbishop Anthony Fisher says it's no secret the ACT government want to force Calvary Hospital to provide abortions now 
and euthanasia and assisted suicide in the future. I mean, what hypocrisy, though, by the ACT Health Minister, Kevin, Rachel Stephen-Smith. She says, oh, Calvary's played a very important role in delivering public hospital care for the Canberrans for 44 years, but she wants to consolidate mm. our public hospitals. I mean, you're kidding, Rachel. <laughs> Just admit that you don't know much. But, Kevin, Calvary has 76 years to run on its lease. So this is totalitarian behaviour. Suspend standing orders introduce legislation for the forcible acquisition of Calvary to be completed by July. Kevin, what Australia are we living in where an individual or an entity can be just dispossessed of their land and property? What Australian would like to have their contract ripped up unilaterally? The other question here, uh, Alan, is there are over a thousand people working in that hospital. Many of the doctors, the nurses, the health professionals, they have a religious view. And religion, as you know, is a protected uh, uh, asset under international law. So freedom of religion, uh, whether it's the United Nations, I don't always agree with the UN, but there are various declarations that protect religious freedom. Australia has signed up to those. And what happens to these doctors and nurses? Where do they go to work? If they're forced to work in a hospital, uh, a secular state hospital, where they're made to do these procedures that are against Very their religion. Point. Very good point. I mean, you talked about freedoms. I mean, through coronavirus, we had freedoms and rights taken from us. Now property rights are being taken from the Catholic Church. I mean, my understanding, as is yours, is that Calvary's Chief Executive Martin Bowles was in some sort of negotiation with the government down there to sell them sufficient land with expansion space on the condition that the Catholic Church would continue to run their own hospital. How can you exclude, though, the ideological motivation of all this? And I wonder, will Canberrans by the argument that, oh, this is to improve the efficiency of the AT ACT's health network, which, as I understand it, is a shambles. I mean, this is another nail in the coffin. It is, and uh, I've always prided Australia on the liberties and freedoms we have had historically. And contrary to what uh, this black armband view is of history that Geoffrey Blaney uh, talked about, we have much to celebrate the fact that we have English common law, which came with the First Fleet. We have a Westminster-style parliamentary system. If you only go north to China or Vietnam or Cambodia or further to Russia, you'll see millions of people oppressed and uh, imprisoned illegally. We're starting to become a third-rate republic Absolutely. in Australia Absolutely. where freedoms are denied. Absolutely. Absolutely. The roll is on and the map is red. I mean, I should just point out that a government-controlled parliamentary committee only recently attacked Calvary Hospital for not permitting elective abortions, abortions, even though they are not even carried out at Canberra Hospital either, but they are attacking Calvary Hospital. Uh, emergency abortions, I should point, are carried out at Calvary, not at Woden. Uh, one final question, Kevin. Doesn't Anthony Albanese say that Catholicism, along with the Labor Party and the South Sydney Rugby League team, is one of the central facets of his life? He didn't go to the funeral of Cardinal Pell. Is he now going to abandon Calvary Hospital? That's a very good point. And uh, I know he always bangs on about his housing commission upbringing yeah, and his, yeah. his, his poor mother who helped out. The fact is, this is a government which is destroying the working class. Some years ago, I think it was a Labor politician who said the Labor Party is no longer the working man's party. It's the middle class whinger's party. And uh, Albanese, he talks about Catholicism as uh, Chairman Dan does in Victoria. I mean, Chairman Dan's children go to a Catholic school. You'd never believe it, given the way he's uh, fighting against the church. But Albanese, if he's serious, would understand that religious freedom is a fundamental right that must be protected. Absolutely. And it's all very well to wander off to China, to a dictatorship, to a totalitarian regime where he's looking for uh, uh, support. Why doesn't he stay in Australia and defend the citizens who have faith-based beliefs? Well done. Brilliantly said, Kevin. Thank you for your time, Dr. Kevin Donnelly. Now, look, you can all help sign the petition. Go to savecalvary.com.au, 
savecalvary.com.au, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y. Come on, do it now, savecalvary.com.au and share it with your friends. Well, before we go, new research out of the United States has rubbished another mad proposal by the green activists. Over the last few years, we've been told that laboratory-produced fake meat is a greener alternative to meat from livestock. This year, the SBS reported that lab-grown meat could, quote, feed tens of millions of people a year. A recent Guardian newspaper headline, they'd believe anything, these people, read, Australia's first lab-grown pork is softer and more gelatinous. A Nine News article celebrated an Australian company that created a giant meatball from mammoth cells. Well, now research out of the University of California had had to happen. Hardly a bastion, I might add, of conservative political thought has found that growing artificial meat in a laboratory could be 25 times worse for the climate, if that's what you're worried about, than regular meat. And this is because the production of the fake meat uses a great deal of energy. For instance, energy is needed to grow plants for sugars and to run laboratories where growth factors are extracted from their cells. More energy is then needed to purify using energy-intensive techniques such as ultrafiltration and, of course, chromatography. So over $3 billion has been invested into growing fake meat, yet, quote, we don't really know if it'll be better for the environment, according to Derek Risner of the University of California. Surprise, surprise. Sounds familiar? We know the Greenies claim wind panels and solar panels are better for the environment, and yet they're manufactured in coal f- coal-powered Chinese factories. They only last about 10 years, after which they go to landfill where they produce toxic emissions. But of course, hundreds of billions, perhaps trillions, has been spent on the so-called green technologies. The same goes for electric vehicles. Reuters have just reported that tyres for electric vehicles wear out up to 50% faster than tyres for conventional vehicles. The issue with this, or when the tyre wears out, they release about 200 different chemicals into the air and water. Now, under Plymouth University estimates that tyre wear could account for 65%, 18,000 tonnes annually of microplastics released into the United Kingdom's surface waters. The short point, the Green Crusade, I've told you, is a facade. The activities claim that their proposals will improve the environment when in reality they'll damage the environment more than conventional meat, more than conventional forms of energy, and more than conventional vehicles. But we all know the truth doesn't matter when huge government subsidies are involved. The old rule, follow the money. But remember, mugs like us have got to stop government dishing the money out. That's it from me tonight. Thank you for your company. You can listen to tonight's program on your podcast app from 6am tomorrow morning. Just search Alan Jones. Tonight's program and all past programs on the app and website, adh.tv. You are watching ADH. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'll be back tomorrow night. Don't forget, if you want to join Campo and me to the Rugby World Cup this year, October 19 to 29, 10 days, French River Cruise, tickets to the semifinals, the bronze final and the final, Campo and I to entertain you, talking rubbish and rugby. Just go to the website. There it is, zt.com.au, zt.com.au, and I'll see you tomorrow night. Promise. Good night.